Hello, and welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. My name is David Naff. I'm the Assistant Director of Merck and the host of this podcast. Merck recently put out a research report from our Equitable Access and Support for Advanced Coursework Study focused on Advanced Placement, or AP, classes. The report looks at the history and trends of the AP program, as well as the enduring racial and socioeconomic disparities and who takes and succeeds in these classes. Uh, like any Merck report, we focus on research-based evidence about what contributes to these disparities and discuss strategies and recommendations for making the AP program more equitable. Uh, here with me today are three authors from that report who are also members of our research team on this project. We will be talking through highlights from the report as well as our overall thoughts on AP based on our personal experiences as students and educators as well as what we learned from the literature. Let me introduce everyone to you now. Uh, we have Jenna Linhart, who leads the recruitment initiatives in the Office of Enrollment Management in the VCU School of Education. Jenna received her BS in sociology from the State University of New York in Buffalo, her MA in higher education administration from Appalachian State University, where I also attended, go apps, uh, and her PhD in higher education leadership from Capella University. Jenna, welcome to the podcast. Virginia Palencia is a postdoctoral research fellow in institutional equity, effectiveness, and success at Virginia Commonwealth University. She received her BS in English Literature and Business Administration from the University of Maryland, her MAT in Teaching from Christopher Newport University, and her PhD in Educational Leadership from Virginia Commonwealth University. We also just recorded and released a podcast episode with uh, Dr. Palencia, newly minted Dr. Palencia, about her dissertation research around um, uh, equity of access for AP classes for Latinx students in Virginia, which is really fascinating stuff. So definitely recommend you listen to that episode and read her dissertation. Virginia, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me again. Uh, and then Mitch Perry is a third year PhD student in educational leadership at VCU. He received his BA in psychology and English from the University of Richmond and his MED in developmental science from the University of Virginia. Mitch is the second author on this report. He also has been involved in a variety of Merck projects besides just this study. Um, he's on a lot of our evaluation teams. Mitch is a dynamic researcher and we're thrilled to have him on this study and on this podcast. Mitch, glad to have you here, man. You flatter me, David. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so we have a lot to discuss and to set the stage for the conversation around AP classes. I think it's important for us to just have a conversation about what is our experience with AP? Like, did you take AP classes in high school? If you were an educator, what experience do you have leading students through AP? Uh, Virginia, let's start with you. What is, what's your background with AP? I have absolutely no background with AP. David, I'm an example of a student who never took a single class and did not understand the benefits of the program. I went to um, an urban public high school that had a pretty rich AP program, so I knew students that were taking it, but definitely being a family that's somewhat new to college and the first female to ever graduate in my family, we are an example of a family that didn't know the rules and didn't know how to leverage that maybe for college. Did that lead to your interest in your dissertation research that was about AP classes? Oh, absolutely. Um, I related very strongly um, with families in the same position. Jenna, how about you? You know, it's interesting because um, I, I actually went to a school district. I was moved to uh, from a rural school district to a more suburban school district. And so those 
just different opportunities for AP and advanced coursework were stark for me. And so I think that probably planted the scene early for me as it related to access um, and equity as it related to rural versus urban and suburban when it came to rigorous coursework. I would say the other component for AP because I did take an ACE course and I took an AP course. And so for me, that would be dual enrollment versus AP. Hmm. And for my AP course, um, I was actually told that um, from the instructor at the time, you know, at the end of the the end of the semester, he said, you know, I really didn't want to um, accept you into this course, but somebody told me that you would probably argue about it so that I could just let you in. And, you know, you surprised me because you weren't a good writer and I really didn't think you'd succeed, but hey, you did and you surprised me. And so I think that that set really early in my academic coursework about that gatekeeper. I didn't know the language for it at the time, but I think um, for my experience, I understood gatekeepers. I understood the power of gatekeepers. I also understood that the AP versus ACE, you know, AP, I had to take a test and I'm horrible at tests. Um, I can't sit still. Um, And so that was a real struggle for me. And so I didn't do as well on the AP test, but I aced the course. And with my ACE, uh, or I guess it would be dual enrollment courses, I did very well. And then I got college credit for those. And so it, I think early on my experience with AP versus dual enrollment also set the foundation of why I'm really passionate about access to um, advanced coursework, but particularly advanced coursework that doesn't require a student to have a high stakes test to a certain point, um, because I have had sort of a negative experience with that. Hmm. Um, But on the other hand, if that course wasn't there, I would have never gotten that advanced class in school, it would, that also gave me additional points on my GPA um, that made me more competitive. So there's a lot of sort of mixed emotions around it, but that's my experience. Yeah, that's a, I mean, a pretty textbook example of gatekeeping that we're going to talk about later on. Mitch, how about you? So I, I took a few APs in high school, mostly um, math and English, but I was in a position where I never wanted to take APs. Um, I wanted to just get through high school and do whatever uh, and go on to whatever was next. I didn't really, coming into high school, I didn't have an aspiration for a college to go to, but my dad uh, basically forced me into taking AP and advanced courses. And I share the same hatred of standardized testing that Jenna does. Um, I always did terrible on the AP exams, the SATs, et cetera. And I was fine in the actual coursework. I just did enough to get by. But when it came to the uh, standardized testing, it was always uh, basically a 50-50 coin flip on if I was going to succeed or fail it miserably. I think I failed basically half the AP exams I was in. Mm. And then I still managed to somehow get into undergrad. And I think at some point someone told me that I only got in because I took those APs. So just thinking about the fact that I maybe wouldn't have even been on this trajectory for where I went to school if I hadn't been in the classroom for AP, right? Mm -hmm. Um, AP English was where I learned to write. And if I hadn't taken those courses, I don't don't know where I would be right now. And I'm just thinking about the people who I know personally who never got to take courses with the teachers I had because all the best teachers at my school were thrown into the AP program, right? Mm -hmm. So just thinking about how they weren't able to get that access was, it's, it's been something I've thought about since I came to BCU, I think again, that's, that's a good example of the limitations of, of exams and um, AP courses are largely built around those 
exams. It's not just the fact that you take those classes, uh, like you were saying, Mitch. I would say that I personally have a pretty complicated relationship with AP classes. Uh, I went to a rural high school um, and took every AP class that was available to me, which was not very many. We didn't offer a single AP math or science class. So we had this kind of strange situation where higher performing math students would take pre-calculus in their junior year. And then senior year, the only other math class to take was a, um, a standard level trigonometry class, whereas a, an AP class would have been beneficial. And we'll talk about this later on that in rural schools, kind of like what Jenna was talking about, AP classes are not as prominent. But when I think about AP classes, I primarily think about it through the lens of my time as a high school counselor and enrolling students in their classes each year. And AP classes were worth uh, in North Carolina, where I was a counselor, two quality points on the GPA. So an AP class, if you got an A, it was worth six points on your GPA. Um, so that's worth basically a C in an AP class is worth an A in a standard level class or a B in an honors level class. Our dual enrollment classes, which Jenna was also alluding to a moment ago, if you got an A in that class, which was also worth college credit, it was only worth one quality point on the GPA. So AP and International Baccalaureate, which we didn't offer at our school, but AP classes got this special designation as being uniquely rigorous to the point of getting two points added to the GPA. And so we had students who would take four, five, six, sometimes seven AP classes in a year, which is a tremendous load for any high school student to take. A lot of times they were doing that on top of extracurricular activities, multiple varsity sports. They'd be up till 2 a.m. working on homework all the time for their AP classes. But they would also report back after their freshman year of college that their first year was um, was easy for them because their junior and senior high school were so rigor- rigorous. So great in the sense that we were preparing students, but I also wonder about like gatekeeping practices that I encountered at the high school where I worked. Um, I saw this with pushback from some of my colleagues, for some students that we enrolled in AP classes, I wonder about my own practices as a counselor, for who I recommended AP classes to and who I didn't recommend AP classes to, and I would probably do things a lot differently. And I was sharing this with our, our writing team. After writing this report, I have fairly different opinion about AP classes when I got started. I think there's a lot of benefit to AP classes, but at the same time, I think there are we have a long way to go with the program to make it something that's actually benefiting students the way that it, it says that it's intended to benefit them. Uh, and to that end, maybe we should get into a discussion about what AP classes are and some of the history and development of the program. So Jenna, walk us through that. What are AP classes and how has this really prominent program developed over time? Yeah, thank you, David. So I, I think history is really important to set the context of where we are today because where something came from, similar to higher education, it was really built as a system to support the elite. You know, in the early 1950s, um, administrators, usually from Ivy League institutions, really saw AP as an opportunity to create that bridge of high achieving students to gain access to their programs. And, and the idea from a higher education lens is we wanna prepare and create a, an effective pipeline. The challenge with that, and similar to the challenge of the history of higher education, is that you're also creating inherently an inequitable system by creating a system within 
very, I would say, uh, elitist and sort of high access or um, uh, not high access areas where you're going to get your best and brightest. So when you think about AP, similar to SAT, um, if you have the support systems of tutoring and if you have the support systems of taking the test multiple times financially, et cetera, et cetera, similar to AP, you are likely going to be tracked early in your academic programs if you have somebody who at home has also completed a college degree or knows how to play the system. And Virginia was mentioning that earlier. And so AP is off of the same concept of higher education of you know, generally high SES homes and parents who have been through the system of higher education have been through these systems, um, elitist systems generally um, of access, um, will then have higher access to these types of courses. And if students that are in these homes may have struggles academically, they then can pay for support to then get students access to uh, tutors or other um, college level coursework sort of supports. So I think it's interesting to think about where and why it came about and the real investment from a higher education institution standpoint of ensuring they have this pipeline of strong students, quote unquote strong students um, or high achieving students, but the selectivity of where they look for and how they identify those students. And that's where the AP program I think starts to develop. And it also starts to expand. Um, so the expansion of AP, I think was an intention. And I think that there was an intention to not only from the AP, you know, the college board standpoint, but also in general is to increase access to these uh, advanced classes. AP is a standard that then higher education caught on to, to say, we need a way to compare students. We need a way to identify students who will be successful in our institutions. And what are those different ways? What are those indicators? Looking from an admission standpoint, it's helpful to understand who the student is to say, okay, are they going to be successful in our program? Because you want a student to be successful. You don't want to set up a student to fail. And so particularly at Ivy League institutions, if a student has shown that they are capable and able to achieve certain coursework and achieve high you know, AP scores in certain things, then you have a stronger likelihood in your mind as an admissions counselor that they're going to do well in your institution and you're going to be able to invest resources and that student's going to have a good experience. So from a historical standpoint, it was really founded on um, a concept of helping the best and the brightest. And generally that was in high um, SES ho- households to achieve better access to Ivy League and some of the um, hardest to access institutions in the United States. And so with the growth of programs, the K through 12 system really utilized this as an opportunity to track and support students um, as it relates to preparing for college and increasing college access. Um, So different institutions and different schools would um, provide more AP as it relates to in their schools and their opportunities. And they, of course, wanted to, you know, David, you mentioned giving more quality points. They wanted to make these harder classes worth it in some ways for those high achieving students because students are smart. Um, And like Mitch said earlier, if it's going to be a harder class and I can take an equal class for the exact same thing, you know, in some ways, if you're doing three sports and music and doing all these other things, you want to be smart about your time and, and your GPA. 
And so there is a certain amount of why am I going to do this? What am I going that return on investment of time from a student standpoint and a parent standpoint? So I do understand why schools um, also created those mechanisms, but then of course they have an unforeseen circumstances as it relates to accesses too. I mean, speaking of the, the foundation of the program, how it got started, I mean, it was in a handful of schools initially. And then the next year, uh, what the 1955-56 school year, it was in, I think, like 100 schools and like 1,200 students participated, right? What we show in the report is that uh, the program exploded. So there was this initial buy-in into the program where you could see that students who were in AP classes, so quote-unquote AP students, were successful in college. So more high schools wanted to take it on, more colleges wanted to accept scores of these students. And today there's, I mean, close to 3 million students that are taking AP classes each year, except for last year, there was, you know, an average of like 100,000 new students joining the AP program each year over the last two decades. I'm wondering from your standpoint as a missions kind of representative, what are your thoughts about that kind of trajectory for a program like this that's supposed to indicate your readiness for, for college? Like, I mean, this is unprecedented, right? Yeah, it, it is. And, and I think I have mixed opinions and and probably that's from my own personal experience working at a community college and having dual enrollment credit in my mind it is the a very similar experience and rigor to AP courses um, and and then the students are engaged with their community colleges and um, so I think that from the growth standpoint though and from a higher education standpoint it is kind of the easy out honestly um, from an admissions standpoint you can count that score, you get a, a, a score sheet from AP, just like a transcript, and you give them transfer credits, and it's, it's very easy to administer AP credits. Um, so I, I think from a higher education standpoint, it is, it, it's great. It's almost an, an easy way to check off boxes. Um, I think if I took my admissions um, sort of systems hat off, and I put on my actual student success hat and student access hat, I think it can be really detrimental because as we show in the report, access to these courses are so, and just in our experience, is so drastically different Mm -hmm. that then it's really, you're comparing a student that you don't know how much access they have and how many courses they have access to versus a student that that may, and you're trying to act like they're the same, they have the same experience. And so I'm concerned about the growth because I think we're trying to simplify a very complex picture for students um, in the admissions space. And I'm concerned at the impact, the negative impact that has on particularly um, our, our, our lowest SES schools who are just barely getting the support that they need to, to, to serve the students and, and, and then advanced coursework is maybe just out of that opportunity for them, particularly rural schools. And so I'm concerned about the trajectory in some ways because I think we are sort of addicted a little bit to uh, the easy way out. And I think AP is in some ways a very easy way out as it relates to higher ed and for students in some ways, where I think realistically, if we're looking at competency, we're looking at confidence, we're looking at ability to succeed, it is then going to switch and become, in my mind, a to simplifying to a point where we are then not seeing the actual students. They just become a number to us. And that I want to make sure we do not go towards and we need to move away from in admissions. Yeah. 
we're putting a lot of eggs in the AP basket, it seems. Um, and with more and more schools moving to a test optional format for SAT, ACT, I'm curious about the role that AP classes are going to end up playing in college admissions. If it'll be sort of like a quote unquote standardized way of seeing how students qualify for college. But as you mentioned, with inequitable access to these courses, then that ends up being inherently problematic. So to that end, let's talk about who takes AP classes and what the disparities are, because we go into this in depth in the report. Um, So as Jen and I were just discussing, the AP program has really exploded over its 67-year history. Throughout that history, there's been enduring racial and socioeconomic inequities in who takes and succeeds in AP classes. So Pretty persistently, Black, Latinx, and low-income students tend to be underrepresented in AP, while white, Asian, and higher-income students tend to, be, tend to be overrepresented. Although AP classes are now in the majority of U.S. high schools, you could almost argue that it's to the point of ubiquity or saturation. Black and Latinx students tend to be more likely to attend schools with fewer course options made available to them. So overwhelmingly, schools are likely to offer at least one AP class, but in terms of a complete AP program that has AP math, science, social studies, and English classes, Latinx, Black, and low-income students are more likely to attend schools that don't provide a full battery of courses, particularly with AP math and science. Typically, the higher the racial and socioeconomic segregation of the school, the fewer AP courses that are offered, particularly racially and socioeconomically segregated rural schools that tend to be particularly Uh, not likely to offer a full battery of AP courses. Encouragingly, over time, the percentage of graduates with an AP credit has gone up in nearly all racial groups. So according to College Board data, uh, so comparing graduates from the class of 2009 and the class of 2019, Black students saw an 88% increase in the number of graduates who scored a three or higher on an AP exam, so passing an AP exam and getting college credit, and Latinx students saw a a 180% increase during that time. But over that same time, white and Asian students also increased, so 32% and 70%. So these increases in participation, they might be more emblematic of just more students participating in AP overall without real evidence of shrinking disparities. So without real like targeted intervention there. Um, And when you compare participation rates with graduation rates in 2019, Black students still made up only about a third of their expected representation in AP, while Asian students had roughly tripled their expected representation. Um, And according to Office of Civil Rights data, Black and Latinx students in Virginia represented a little bit more than half of their anticipated enrollment in AP classes overall in the 2015-16 academic year, um, and a little less than half of their anticipated enrollment in AP science and math classes. And by comparison in Virginia, white students were slightly overrepresented in each category, and Asian students had more than double their expected representation in AP science and math classes. In 2019, Black students were 22% of the overall enrollment in Virginia, but they only made up 8% of exams taken and 5% of the students scoring three or higher. Latinx students were also underrepresented on these metrics relative to their 16% share of the Virginia student enrollment. And meanwhile, white students were slightly higher than their expected share of AP exams taken and passed relative to their share of the Virginia student enrollment. And Asian students had roughly triple their expected representation in each category. So there's very prominent disparities racially, not only nationwide, but we also see them here in Virginia. And this is an enduring issue. And then when we look at this socioeconomically, low-income students are also consistently, they tend to participate in AP below their share of the student population. So for example, in Virginia in 2013, 36.7% of students were considered low-income, but only 11.3% of low-income students in Virginia took an AP exam and only 7.6% passed an exam. 
So perhaps unsurprisingly, participation in performance in AP, it tends to increase with parent education level as well. So students whose parents graduated from college are nearly twice as likely to have uh, an AP course credit on their high school train trip as students whose parents did not finish high school. It's also really striking to look at this from a standpoint of urbanicity. So whether schools are in urban, rural, or suburban environment, kind of like what Jenna was talking about, she was in a rural school and then transferred to a suburban school and the availability changed. AP classes are at least, they're least likely to be offered in rural settings and most likely to be offered in suburban settings. And this is partially a function of school size as nearly all schools across urban, rural, and suburban contexts tend to offer at least AB, one AP class. But a 2019 report from the National Center for Education Statistics showed that only 53.6% of schools with 500 or fewer students offered an AP science, math, history, or English course. Um, and you compare that to 88.6% of high schools with 1,200 or more students. So this is a resource issue too. Virginia Plencia's dissertation on this topic, it showed that similarly in Virginia, suburban schools were far more likely to offer AP courses than rural schools. And still disparities tend to exist within suburban schools, which we will get to later in the report and in this conversation. Kind of taken together with what Jenna was talking about, I think about the rapid ascension of the AP program, how it's gotten to this point of near saturation in our schools. So we've given AP and College Board specifically a lot of power in what happens with the academic trajectories of our students and specifically their candidacy for post-secondary education. So these disparities in who has access to these courses and who's getting adequately prepared to be successful in these courses is a real problem. And it's something that we need to make sure that we're addressing if we want to, to really fulfill what the articulated mission of the AP program is which is supposed to be about providing college access to students who are interested in taking college level courses. So it's not always just the already high achieving students, but any student who has interest in going to four-year college, AP, the AP program is supposed to be designed for that. We don't always treat it that way. And Virginia, you have some pretty in-depth understanding about this based off of your personal experiences and your research. Why do these disparities in access and support for AP courses matter? Well, I don't think that's going to be a quick and easy answer. <laughs> I think um, we know that AP has great potential. Definitely people listening to this podcast know there's great potential to promote learning opportunities in school. But what a lot of people don't necessarily consider or realize is that AP or advanced coursework facilitates lifelong benefits for all students if it's offered equitably. So in that same vein, not having access to AP or that kind of coursework can create and perpetuate academic and economic inequities. So to put it plainly, AP doesn't just really matter for high school. It actually has long far reaching implications that matter in terms of opportunity and, and bluntly money. Um, so if we were going to dig into a little bit as to why access and support matters, um, and just looking at it first from the, the high school lens of it, there is a lot of research out there that we found that shows that AP is associated with deeper academic engagement. And so what that means is that AP can give students a chance to engage in rigorous coursework. It leads to stronger self-efficacy and self-perception, which is a self-fulfilling prophecy for a lot of students at that age, participating in AP tends to have or create a richer educational experience overall, because with advanced coursework, you're gonna have experienced and more highly trained teachers like we were talking about earlier. 
and even even students having more instructional time that bell to bell that's so important but as i was saying the benefits of access aren't just limited to the high school experience because ap participation also factors into college admissions so it's associated with greater acceptance rates scores often are used as a proxy for academic achievement and potential um, it can even be tied to financial aid rewards right and then finally even after getting into college the benefits of AP are linked to college readiness, college persistence, and college completion, meaning that students in AP develop a lot of academic skills that help you be successful in college, like scholarly writing, like we were speaking about with Mitch earlier, or critical thinking, um, or the performance on exams is positively correlated with achievement, post-secondary achievement outcomes overall. And then finally, that college completion, the bachelor degree, attainment is also positively associated with the degree of rigor in the classes you had in high school. And when we begin to discuss certain underserved groups like Latinx or Black or African American, um, where there are college completion gaps, not getting it done in four years, five years, six years, there's even more weight to that conversation. So basically not having access to AP or having disparities in access or in enrollment can create impacts far beyond high school. And in fact, these disparities can ripple through college and beyond, resulting in very real differences in educational opportunity, which in turn translates into economic opportunity. So if you think about it, AP participation creates not only an academic pipeline, it's an economic pipeline as well, in my opinion. And that's why you have to exercise caution when we look at AP expansion because it still disproportionately benefits more affluent students and their families. So when we consider um, the policy and the discussion and the weight of that, which we'll get into in the end, it's really important that there's not just one lever, right? To right the wrongs. So Virginia, I, I think in hearing you talk, you talk about also, you know, this access, but, and I'm thinking in a school when, some students are chosen and some students aren't chosen and some students choose and some students don't choose. How much does it also perpetuate in-group, out-group, perpetuate this sort of confidence of that I am worthy of college boundness? You know, when it comes to also why this matters, is there also a, a piece behind this about identity in schooling that may, may be reinforced by being sort of chosen or selected or suggested or not chosen and not selected and not, not suggested to, to go into that? Like how much do you think there's also this undercurrent of a culture of AP that's also playing into this? I'm really interested in the idea of the culture of AP and a lot of those factors that go into the, maybe why this happens. Now that I've done a study of what is happening, um, I don't think there's one easy answer but I do think that that's definitely a piece that needs to be researched more. There's literally a study out there called, you mean I'm not like for the AP, <laughs> which, which is a qualitative study that, that looks into those perceptions and those self-perceptions. And I can just speak on being a high school teacher myself um, and often having general education classes and recognizing the talent of my students and, and questioning, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you taking this to a higher level? And often being told that's for other kids. That's not for kids like me, which is really depressing. Yeah. I mean, it's, we go into this, into the report and, and you were pretty instrumental in writing this section, Virginia, this idea of social reproduction 
in a high school instead of it being really a, a vehicle for social mobility. And I think about this in terms of the students that we, when I was a counselor, would enroll in AP classes and how rarely those students would also take career and technical education classes, for example, right? Like it was a very rare student who would take automotive body repair and AP human geography, for example, right? And a lot of that you can attribute to GPA, kind of like what Jenna was saying and the quality points because a student would essentially be damaging their GPA if they had above a 5.0 or above a 4.0 um, and they were wanted to take a CTE class, then even if they got an A in the class, it was going to damage their GPA. But in terms of identity and in-group and out-group, I mean, what are we communicating to students about classism, right? Like that an AP class is going to be considered that much more rigorous than, you know, learning how to work on an engine or learning how to build a house for like these construction technology classes. That's hard stuff. You know, we don't, we don't typically award that in terms of GPA quality points as much as we do a class like AP. So Virginia, do you have any other thoughts about the, just the social reproduction element of this? David, I could have a five hour podcast on social (laughs) reproduction alone and even the in-group out-group you know experience because for example I went to an urban public high school in the late 80s early 90s and I didn't really understand what the AP program was I had never heard of it until maybe my sophomore junior year but I did have the idea that that was for other kinds of students students who were definitely going to university or whose parents could afford it And there very much was an us versus them, which is why I always touch on being a teacher decades later and hearing the same conversations, how much has the needle really moved them. So when we get into social reproduction or social replication, it's that idea that we're really heavily tracked into one way or the other. And I definitely am a proponent of vocational education. I think it's fabulous. And I think it's an opportunity that should um, not be looked down on just because it's not necessarily academic. But on the same token, I wanna make sure the right students are having the right opportunities and that students have the freedom to choose. And so what we have found, because we know the AP program really began, you know, initially it was meant to give a leg up or boost for, you know, students going to college anyway. So we have a habit of pushing certain kinds of students, black and brown, into lower education classes and encouraging white and Asian students perhaps to go into those higher level classes. And that, again, like I said, translates into the opportunities, the very real opportunities you have about going to university, saving money on those classes for those underserved groups that could really benefit from it, and the kind of careers that they can later have access to. When we discuss um, STEM work and how important access to STEM is and the fact that there is not STEM coursework available AP-wise, right, in rural schools, and that we see even bigger gaps between racial and ethnic groups um, in those who are taking and completing those STEM exams, if we know that's where the career forward jobs are, I think that's a really important conversation because we're just replicating the same generational idea that certain students belong in certain careers. And there's complicated series of factors that contribute to why these disparities exist and why we tend to, to have this social reproduction that happens in schools and the role that AP courses play. So just a, a few highlights from that section of our paper, like any issue that has endured for decades in public education, the, the answer is complex. So we know that student motivation 
plays a role in this. Specifically, let's look at this in terms of belonging and this kind of like sense of relatedness in the classroom. The research shows that students a lot of times don't want to be the only racial minority student in an AP class. And they're aware of that whenever they're going in for enrollment meetings with counselors and teachers that that weighs on their decision making that they they know that they wouldn't have social support in these classes. Perceptions of parental advocacy definitely play a role as well. Uh, and not just specifically parental advocacy, but perceptions of parental advocacy by educators. So a book that we've been reading as a study team that's pretty prominent in this field, Lewis and Diamonds, Despite the Best Intentions, um, How Racial Inequality Thrives in Good Schools. The authors interviewed uh, educators, parents, and students in this uh, high school called Riverside High School that was a suburban school where there are pretty clear racial and socioeconomic disparities in who was taking advanced versus standard level classes. Um, and the educators in that book reported that sometimes they would enroll their white and higher um, SES students in more rigorous classes, even if they felt like it wasn't a good fit for them, just at the mere thought of the parental pushback. So the thought of, of parents calling the school and complaining about their students being in, uh, sometimes they talked about quote unquote mixed ability classes, for example. While you can contrast that with black parents who were interviewed for the book, reporting having to repeatedly advocate for their children to take more rigorous classes, including having to talk to department chairs, for example. We know that teacher quality can play a role. We know that it's well documented in the research literature that teachers in high poverty environment, school environments tend to have less experience in terms of just years of experience in the classroom. And the research shows that this is also true of AP classes in these schools. Perhaps most prominently, racial and socioeconomic segregation due to academic tracking plays a really considerable role in what we're seeing going on with AP classes. So it's an educational practice where we categorize and classify students by curriculum standards, by educational and career exp uh, aspirations or ability levels, typically based off of scores from a previous year. People who argue for academic tracking will say that it helps teachers to really specify their teaching to the academic abilities of students in their classes without having to differentiate much. Opponents to academic tracking, and there are many opponents to academic tracking, argue that it ends up creating this system where we have in-groups and out-groups for academically rigorous classes and that inherently we end up having some students left out of rigorous classes or having their options limited, where students who are already on a higher track from earlier elementary school end up having more options available to them. So how does this look in practice? There are a lot of ways that academic tracking actually happens in schools. We know that it happens in academic preparation and tracking that occurs before high school. So for example, Black, Latinx, low-income students are less likely to be on an accelerated math pathway in elementary school, which means they're less likely to take and pass Algebra 1 by the eighth grade in middle school, which means they're less likely to be able to enroll in advanced math and science classes in high school, like AP math and science classes. We know that education expectations and bias can play a role. So for example, AP classes are more likely to be taught bell to bell whereas standard classes are not as likely to be taught bell to bell that showed up in the Lewis and Diamond book as well. So it's communicating a lower expectation for the performance and, and uh, ability levels of those students. We know that under identification can play a role, um, even when students show a comparable level of achievement. This happens as early as gifted programs at elementary school and has a trajectory or has a sort of a um, resonating impact over time when students get to, to high school. Uh, we know that gatekeeping plays a role, and we've been talking about gatekeeping throughout this conversation. A prominent example of this is teacher recommendations, so students having to get a recommendation from a teacher to take an AP class rather than letting students just truly opt into being able to take a, an AP class because they want to challenge themselves with the rigor or they want to experience 
experience college level coursework. And some of the ways that we sort of inherently or explicitly track students academically is putting them into categories early on in school. So special education, for example, English learners, for example, we know that students who are identified as having disabilities and students who are English learners are the most underrepresented student groups in AP programs. Um, and so much about AP disparities centers around issues with tracking in earlier grades. And we're going to discuss detracking later in Mitch's section. And this really raises the question, if we do away with academic tracking in earlier grades, but we hold on to our current enrollment practices in AP in high school, are we just delaying tracking? And Mitch, I think that leads into what you're going to talk about is what are some prominent policies and strategies that can really help to address disparities in AP? What do we know from the research about ways to potentially address this issue? Right. Um, I kind of want to start out by talking about what doesn't work or what may look like it works, but after maybe a year of implementation, uh, we find the same disparities by race and socioeconomic status creeping up again, and sometimes even being magnified. So First off, there are three very popular policy shifts for addressing inequities in AP, those being inducement and incentive programs, accountability, and uh, what I'll say are critical mass programs, and then uh, virtual school, which we've learned a lot more about now, given the current climate. But moving to inducement and incentive programs, these programs involve paying students and teachers money for successful scores on AP exams, not for class grades, but for the AP exam. And what we find in the literature is that there are some short-term benefits to this. The pure idea of having more students in class because they want to get some sort of financial reward at the end of it by doing well brings students in. It does increase some numbers in terms of Black student representation, Latinx student representation, and white student representation in the first one to two years of implementation. But we find that there's no there's no general increase in success on the AP exam. And after the second year, the numbers tend to dwindle and shrink for Black student enrollment and Latinx student enrollment in AP programs. And then you end up with a much larger number of white students overall. And those students are the ones who are succeeding for one reason or another and also getting the money. When we get to accountability programs, which have been tested in California and Pennsylvania, accountability programs will try to create a critical mass of AP options. They'll take a school that has maybe seven AP courses and they'll say, okay, well, let's double it. Let's make it 14. And what that does is you get a ton of more students in. So on the surface, you have an increase in Black student enrollment in AP, white student, Latinx student enrollment. But again, after one to two years, those numbers dwindle. And then you have approximately the same number of Black and Latinx students you had initially. But after two years, you just have way more white and middle class or upper middle class students in those AP courses. For virtual, this is a a less tried program relative to accountability and inducement, but basically they're trying to expand AP by allowing you to take it at home. And the problem with that is virtual classes are high cost. It's about $300 per course unit to get into a virtual AP course. And that's on the face and usually not covered by school in the public domain. So you end up with those with the financial means of taking these courses, being able to enroll but no increase for those who may need access, but have been denied access in person and now virtually because of financial constraints. When we think about what does work for AP or what addresses the disparities, um, they're much more comprehensive and involved programs. So Burris and Wellner have a large backlog of literature and longitudinal studies about AP expansion in terms of detracking, which is getting rid of that pipeline from elementary to middle to high school of high track courses leading into AP or advanced coursework in high school and college access. 
And compared to inducement, accountability, and virtual programs, detracking is much more comprehensive. It involves policies that address multiple levels of education, be it getting rid of the lowest track and only having high track courses, getting rid of AP, and then bringing in only high track courses that have similar curriculum to AP, but aren't attached to the AP program that have high expectations of students that bring in students starting from the lower tracks of middle school. So you're recruiting students to enter into the high track courses in the middle school level and also detracking the middle school level and getting rid of say gifted and talented programs so that every student is on the same page. Every student has these high expectations and all teachers are saying we have these high expectations for students. Detracking isn't just a eliminate the lowest track or make everyone in the same group take the same class. It's also telling teachers and administrators that everyone needs to be held to the same high expectations. It's really a shift in school culture rather than just a shift in curriculum. So some of the strategies for effective detracking that may help with disparities in AP are to have those cultures of high expectations to make sure the interventions are early to really train into students those skills, those essential skills for studying, preparation, even having high expectations for themselves, not just having teachers give high expectations to those students. Having open enrollment if you do choose to retain AP, making sure that there's no minimum qualification for it, say not that you need a 90% or what would be an A in, in the class you want to take before you take AP. And the school will provide the support to make sure that you're able to learn at a level that's effective for you and that you can keep up with other students and other students can also support you making it a more collaborative environment than a competitive one, which is where I think AP currently stands. And then making sure that parents are fully informed about the process. Uh, we talked a lot earlier in our introductions about gaps in knowing what AP even is from the student side and from the family side. And that's not an issue of disparity. That's just an issue of schools aren't reaching out to every student and they're not giving that information to parents. They're not telling students what AP is so they can talk to their parents about what AP is. Finally, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but school districts really need to prioritize giving supports for students who may be falling behind or struggling with AP or a high rigor environment and giving teachers the bandwidth to support those students, giving them the resources they need in terms of materials, in terms of money, in terms of time, and making sure that students are able to learn to their most effective state. Mitch, what are your thoughts on... AP courses as potentially being inherently tracked in the, the their current state and the way that we end up offering them to students is in sort of said another way, if we took steps towards detracking, what do AP courses look like in that sort of environment? I'll talk a little bit about what I experienced with AP and how I think it would be different. So when I took AP calculus in high school, it was a lot of here's the information about this particular thing. And then you're going to work on it the whole time. And that's it. They're just, they present to you the information and then you work on it and they don't really provide any direct feedback or additional support. It's a lot of say the lecture style courses because they're trying to fit in everything they can before a standardized exam. If you were to shift AP to being more support heavy, which is the direct, I think any direction I think it may need to go to, you're taking away the exam that constrains the time that you have to learn all the information. And you're saying, okay, we don't need to lecture on this information. They may still present it on the board, but then you're asking students to work on particular question sets or something like that and work collaboratively in the classroom with other students. It's no longer a competition of, I'm gonna learn this as fast as I can to try and get a five on the AP exam, or I'm gonna to try to be 
that 90% and boost my GPA. You're working collaboratively with other students and the teacher may be going around the classroom and speaking to those students who are in heterogeneous groups of ability level and supporting each other and giving that direct feedback and direct question responses that are needed because they now have the extra bandwidth. I believe the AP exams are still in April and school doesn't end until what, uh, early June, late May. So you have an extra month and a half of instruction time that doesn't need to just be blank space now. I remember when I took AP courses, I believe this happened every year, you have the exam in April, but you're done with the curriculum because the exam just happened. And there's a month and a half of, there's no learning time. You don't learn anything new. Having that extra month and a half really gives teachers more bandwidth to help the students and gives the students more bandwidth to support each other and learn in a collaborative environment. What do we think the future of the AP program is? If I had to guess, I mean, it feels that AP is very, from a national level, speaking of College Board, AP is a very rigid program. They want to maintain the status, the, um, the prestige of having these classes that give college credit across the board, theoretically across the board to different students. I'm not sure how AP can continue to thrive as a a prestigious test-making body or prestigious course creation body if they continue to do what they've done for so long because people are starting to notice that A, it's favoring those who can pay for the tests and B, it's not really providing what it promises. The people who provide what it promises are the teachers who are teaching and providing the curriculum and the pedagogy and really conveying the skills to the student. Really what AP is asking teachers to do is just do enough so that they can pass the exam so we can give them what we promised. And I don't think that's an effective model for policy. I'm really excited about the potential of dual enrollment or concurrent enrollment as an answer, because if you think about it with AP, everything hinges on one test, one exam, that high stake scenario. And we definitely see a lot of disparities and disproportionality in AP completion in terms of students taking the test and of course, passing. And then furthermore, with AP, it's up to each individual university what the cut score is going to be. So there's a lot less consistency. So as an answer, dual enrollment would be much more universally accepted. Mm. And then also the credit is based on a semester's worth or a year's worth of coursework, which seems more fair. But I just read a study this morning by Clayton discussing advanced placement and what they call concurrent enrollment, dual enrollment. And what they found is that even with all of this in play, parents and families are still opting for advanced placement. That tells me it's here to stay for a while. You know, I think it depends on what we're trying to do and, and who we're talking to. So if you look at it from a, a student success lens is speaking back, David, to, you know, some of the students and their experience and that it prepared them for college. Yeah. I mean, I I think that if you challenge students and you teach them how to study, I mean, that is one of the top anxieties of incoming students is that I don't know how to study. I never had to study in high school. Hmm. So if we're, we're truly talking about a student success model, then we're, I don't necessarily think we need AP to do that, but it is a vehicle. It could be a vehicle vehicle that we could use for that. I, I think that the way that it is structured right now and the fact that we see all of these, de- you know, these details in this, this research that shows us the inequities, particularly for students on IEPs. And so then if you look at it from a societal lens, 
if we truly want to look at AP as a vehicle for equity and make, maximizing our citizenry and maximizing the skill sets of our, our country, then it can be a vehicle, but it, it, the tests need to be taken away and the gatekeepers need to be taken away. And we need to think, you know, along the lines of Mitch's conversation of, you know, how do we create policies that, that support access instead of limiting access? But that's really then going to change the whole point of the program, right? I mean, the, the history of the program was to give the best and the brightest access to the best and the brightest institutions. And, and so it's doing that right now. And it's, it, it's still continuing to do that. So I think it depends on who we're asking as to the future. In my mind, the future should be, of course, no tests, but that's a whole nother podcast, but definitely no tests. But then on top of that, think we need to think about careers. And Virginia, you mentioned this earlier as well, is if we know the careers that we need are in STEM, we know that the career, we understand where the growth of careers are, then the AP program needs to also understand that it's not, it doesn't need to just be a college ready program. It can be a college and career ready program. How do we then create a different culture in AP that if it's an advanced placement, but for you're trying to go in this direction and we're actually teaching you at a high level of X, Y, and Z when it comes to engineering skills, right? Maybe maybe that will serve you in this type of career path that maybe you need an associate's degree for, not necessarily a bachelor's degree. So in my mind, what AP should be thinking about if they, because they're a very large business and very lucrative, is how can we make this program more accessible because it's actually then going to benefit us and it will benefit society and a lot of organizations and culturally across the United States, there's a lot of question around higher education and the, the, the use of higher education, particularly as students go into debt. AP could be a vehicle if done well and if changed drastically to support the skill sets of both college and career bound students in a way that could just fundamentally support success of our society and, and students and economic growth. Yeah. And to um, to build off of both Virginia's and Jenna's point, I think if AP is around to stay for good, so let's say AP is never taken out of the public U.S. school system, right? There are some very crucial policy steps that need to be implemented, not necessarily from the AP side, not from college board, but maybe from the school district and state side to allow more students to access things because they have direct control. The federal government can pass some things, but because of the way they've written laws and the roles of their own agencies, it's on the states and local school districts to be able to open up access to AP and advanced coursework, right? So the policy measures that need to be put in place are definitely additions of resources for teachers and for administrators in terms of materials and access to professional development. Any professional development to reduce biases and open up mindsets, making sure there's a lot of outreach and recruitment and support beginning in middle school, maybe even as early as elementary school for making sure that students, parents, everyone involved in this process of advanced coursework knows the ins and outs of how it works, where it's going and the benefits and and the drawbacks of it, because there are some drawbacks in terms of stress and just general time commitment. Making sure that any anyone who's new to AP be it their first AP course, their first AP course in whatever subject, or their first advanced course in general, has the supports or infrastructure from the schools and school districts to effectively participate in those courses and to ask questions. There needs to be room to ask questions. And making sure, again, that teachers have the resources to 
effectively run an AP course or any advanced course so that they're not being limited by what they're given. Yeah, just in terms of like looking at this with the overall trajectory of the AP program, like I mentioned earlier, over the last two decades, there's been an average of about 100,000 new students coming into the program each year. In 2018-19, there was only around 16,000 new students that came in compared to the previous year. And in the 2019-2020 school year, there were 183,000 fewer students in AP than the previous year. And that might be attributable to the pandemic, but it also might be a sign that this is maybe an inflection point of we need to look at our relationship with AP because we've been in a lot of ways pretty exclusive with AP as a country and we've invested in this considerably. But I don't want to get lost in this kind of like critique of AP that I think is really merited. I think that there's also tremendous benefits to the program. I think about my students who were ambitious in their freshman year of high school and who they became at the end of high school by taking a number of AP classes and really pushing themselves in rigorous coursework. But I also know that that happened for some of my students, but not for enough of my students. And I think that there are some things that we could have done differently in our enrollment practices to try to get more students into this program that promises a way of getting some access to college level coursework while you're in high school. And I think maybe there's some residual thinking happening related to AP that's based in its in its history. And so I think that if we're going to continue to engage with AP classes at the level that we have been, I think the AP program needs to do some work in being more intentional about actually trying to address some of these disparities. But I think we as educators also need to do some work on ourselves and what we perceive the AP program to be and what it could be. All of this is just a, an overview of a much longer and deeper report that gives uh, that gets a deep dive into a lot of the things that we talked about here. And we're going to need to leave this conversation here for now. But if you want to m- read more about promoting equity in AP classes, you can access our full report on the Merck website at merck.soe.vcu.edu slash reports. That's M-E-R-C soe.vcu.edu slash reports. Uh, you can also learn more about our equity and advanced coursework study on the Merck website at merck.soe.vcu.edu slash projects. Uh, we will be sharing lots of information from this study. So be sure to sign up for our email listserv on our homepage to stay up to date on this research. You can also subscribe and listen to other episodes of Abstract wherever you get your podcasts, including SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Our thanks as always to the VC School of Education for supporting the work that we do at Merck and to all of our partner school divisions, Chesterfield, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Petersburg, Powhatan, and Richmond Public Schools. Thanks to Jenna Linhart, Virginia Palencia, and Mitch Perry for serving as authors on this report and talking through the highlights today. Um, And of course, thanks as always to you for joining our conversation. We hope that you will share this episode with anyone who you think would find it interesting or helpful for their work. This has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. Let's talk again soon.